Hi everyone. I hope you all enjoyed your holiday and most importantly, your Thanksgiving meals. I made my yearly cornbread and mac and cheese, but I'm still searching for the best mac and cheese recipe. So if you have one, feel free to email the podcast or DM me. This week, I have such a great guest for you. Chef Thomas Ricci is the Vice President of Culinary Operations at Gobble and Sunbasket, two popular meal kit brands. He has a lot of experience as he transitioned from a line cook to an executive chef and moved up in the culinary world from an early age. We ventured to the entertainment side with his favorite celebrity cooking stories and his relatability to Hulu's The Bear, while touching upon the successes and failures of being a chef and his top traveling experiences. I think you guys will really, really enjoy this episode as much as I did. So please welcome Chef Thomas Ricci. so much for coming and taking the time out of your very busy schedule to come on my podcast. I really appreciate it. And it's great to meet you. Yeah. Nice to meet you as well, Olivia. Thank you for uh, having me today. Of course. Of course. So I did a deep dive into okay. your background. So I've got a good amount of questions for you if you're ready. Yeah. How deep are we talking about here? <laughs> Just like culinary. Well, it's all okay. culinary. Okay. Just joking. <laughs> <personal>. <laughs> Basically, in your background, you went to the Culinary Institute of America, mm -hmm. worked at a ton of restaurants since. I've talked to quite a few guests who went to CIA and they've had different culinary training and they've had experiences, both good and bad. I would love to hear your experience and what it was like going to the Institute. Yeah. You know, when I decided I wanted to be a chef at a young age and the CIA was kind of like a natural progression, I think it was before the Food Network had become this big popular thing. Chefs hadn't become a cool um, job or, or lifestyle, right? So it was still that, I don't know what you want to do with your life. Oh, I guess we'll be a, a chef someday and maybe the, the CIA is an opportunity. So I worked at... Um, a little a restaurant and then at a country club. And so the, one of the chefs there had gone to CIA. And so when I went in, I was 18. I'd just gone out of high school. And that, I think that was far before anyone else was doing that. The average age was like 24 years old. So it was, yeah. a, I was a little bit, um, you know, I grew up fast there. I loved the education program. I loved the building block. So they said of, of the AOS degree program. And I, I enjoyed every aspect of it. I mean, it's in, mm -hmm. It's in Poughkeepsie, right in the water. The school is great. The, the, the teachers and the chefs were just fantastic. They were really invested. And mm -hmm. um, and I loved it. I loved the class stream of one half to three weeks of each um, class. And I think it was the best grades I've ever gotten in school, ever. And wow. I just, yeah, I just loved it. I loved how we started um, with gastronomy and at the beginning of food and understanding food and culture. And that's a big passion of mine today. And then just mm -hmm. the building block process. It was great. It was great education. Sounds like it. That's funny that you said you got the best grades ever because I talked to a chef yesterday and he said he got the worst grades ever at the CIA. <laughs> okay. But he stuck it out. Yeah. And, you know, none ended up being okay. But that's, that's funny. What were kind of the biggest obstacles you faced when you kind of transitioned upwards? Because you went from a line cook to an executive chef, correct? Yeah, so I was at Aqua and I did an internship there with George Moran and Michael Mina. And I was there about a year and a half. And that was a really like East Coast, French style, aggressive, hardcore kitchen environment, right? I, I don't think there's kitchen environments like that anymore. Mm -hmm. And and then I went to the Mandarin Oriental Hotel, which was a, a much different working environment. And then friends of mine from the CIA had said, hey, we want to open this restaurant. And so I was I went to a chef de cuisine position. And so I kind of at Mandarin Oriental, I was a little bit of a sous chef. But like going into chef de cuisine, I'm like, man, I'm like jumping ahead too fast. I was only 21 years old. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And and I really had been like a tournaw at, at Aqua. But honestly, it was maybe the best thing that I could have done for myself because I really just threw myself into my craft and I was probably doing 80 to 90 hours a week. It was myself and an intern 
And I really learned to understand like how to order, how to manage, you know, the food process, the supply chain, how to organize mm -hmm. my kitchen that was really small, like everything has its place to the next level. And then I was really open to like food without somebody telling me this is how to do it. I, I'd already seen that. I'd already gotten the structure of how cooking was supposed to be, but had this great opportunity to have this really creative mindset there. Um, and I'd be on the phone talking to my fishmonger at like three in the morning of what looks good today, or I've never seen, you know, this type of fish and could you send me some monkfish fish or whatever. And same thing with my produce vendors, I'd go to the produce market at four in the morning. And so I had this freedom to create and do whatever I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But what I wasn't learning maybe was how to manage people, how to be a people person. It was all about the creation and, and the passion for food, but I really didn't mm -hmm. have the growth of becoming an executive chef. And so that took a little more time of like my next stop at Lapis, where now I was, you know, not taking this 26 seat restaurant, but really taking an 80 seat restaurant and taking a bunch mm -hmm. of people who worked at Aqua to manage it with me. And I was 25 then and like, Oh, wow. It was tough. Yeah. I mean, I, I made some mistakes. I definitely, um, how I handled situations, how I wanted my kitchen to run, um, ideally, but I wasn't ready for it. So it took a couple of years to figure that out. And, uh, you know, through failures and through learnings, I was able to, to grow and move into those next stages in my life. Wow. Yeah. There's definitely a difference when you're kind of working for yourself or I guess working for a boss and then becoming that boss and having to manage all of these people. And I mean, people all react differently to different situations. So I'm sure there are a lot of obstacles. Yeah, I think when when one of my staff members gave me the book Devil in the Kitchen about Marco Pierre White, and I was like, what are you trying to say? And uh, you know, not that I'm anywhere close to talented as Marco Pierre White, but that aspect of like mm -hmm. that passion and that drive and not accepting anything less, that's kind of what it was. And, but not knowing how to communicate to people in a really congenial way about what I wanted, mm -hmm. right? So it took a little time. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so glad uh, that I'm not that guy anymore. Well, I'm glad for you too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, communication is a basic skill that kind of everyone has to learn. And now that, especially in my setting when I'm completely remote and we're just kind of in that world now, it's kind of deteriorating, but this podcast helps. <laughs> yeah. It helps. It's a, an attachment to society, right? Getting to talk to people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're going to have to put yourself out there. But you said you knew at a young age that you wanted to be a chef. How young are we talking? Because I've talked to quite a few people who are like eight years old. You, you know what? I've listened to some of your podcasts. I did a little background myself. Oh, yeah. Listen to. Um, yeah. And it, and it was right around that time at eight years old. And um, I think I used to love cooking for my mom, like she'd be in bed and I'd bring food up to her. So I'd go to the kitchen and I'd make a bunch of food and I'd bring mm -hmm. it up to her because I liked that, like giving something of a creation to her. And she's like, oh, and it's your mom, right? So she's never going to say anything was bad. Um, it turned out mm -hmm. the biggest thing I was making for her was a mess in the kitchen um, that she got to come and clean up. But I like that idea of giving something to someone out of your heart that you created. And then it was, I started making like little meals. Bagelonia sandwich was the first sandwich I made. Like I was nine years old and that was my first okay. like meal concept and feeding my brother and, mm -hmm. and my dad. And I just, I just enjoyed food and the creative process without realizing it. And I loved to eat. I mean, mm -hmm. I was a growing kid and I always was like in the kitchen trying to, you know, climb around the cabinet, see what was in there and make something out of nothing. Oh. And that was just my thing. Yeah, it was either outdoors or in the kitchen. Two good things to do. Um, being outside and in the kitchen are my both my favorite things as yeah, well. So. Yeah, so I think it was that age. And then, I, you know, for a while I was thinking about becoming a teacher because I liked, you know, okay. that idea. And then I also liked the idea of maybe being an architect, like creating things and oh, building wow. them. And so I think a chef in a way is probably an engineer more than an architect, but there's way too much math in there. Um, but I like, yeah. <laughs> I like becoming a chef because I can teach people how to cook. I can teach young chefs how to cook. And then I can also create and design foods and then restaurants and, you know, startups building a company from scratch. I think that was really exciting as well. Yeah. I was going to say, there's definitely a lot of parallels with what you're doing now to both being an architect and a teacher as well. I would love to ask, so you've worked in Michelin star restaurants and with 
top chefs kind of around the world. Mm -hmm. Is there someone who you particularly looked up to? You know, um, I worked with Michael Mina and I worked with uh, Roland Passo and Chef Joel Guillon. And the whole Mina group obviously had a lot of tremendous chefs in in there. the first person who ever trained me actually was Jonathan Benno. Um, and he became the chef of per se in New York. He was the opening chef per se in New York for Thomas Keller. And at the time it was just like Garmanger, but this mm-hmm. patience that he had and, and how he taught me even at a young age, like when I was like really 18 years old and just, I was so impressed by mm-hmm. his patience in this world of chaos and like, go, go, go attitude. He always took the time to like, this is how you want to do it. And and this is what we need. And mm-hmm. if I made a mistake, he wasn't like down my throat about it. He was like, all right, let's see how we fix that and how we did that. So I think even though he was at that time, not even a chef, I just saw something in him that was like, someday this guy's going to be great. I hope. Right. So he was one, I think working with Roland, he's just this Gregorious uh, chef and he's got this fantastic technique and he just, he believes in what you do. He comes into the kitchen and he tastes food with you. And he's like, oh, I think we should try it this way or do it that way. And um, he used to be, my first restaurant, Lon Vital, when I was 22, his restaurant, La Folie, was down the street. Mm-hmm. And so all of his staff mm-hmm. would eat at my restaurant on the days that were closed. And I really liked that. Oh, so I got to know cool. him and he kind of took me under his wing. Um, we'd go and have a beer at the end of the night sometimes. And uh, it was great. So I had a lot of respect for his skill set and just who he was as a person. I think, too, when their passion for this can go for kind of any job, but when their passion comes through, especially when they're mentoring you, you can gain that respect for them. But also, I feel like you learn more, at least in my experience, because you can tell even say on this podcast who I'm talking to, whatever it is, when they're so passionate about it and their face lights up about it, that makes me more intrigued on what I'm learning or what I'm talking about. So I think that that kind of rolls back to what you're saying. Yeah, passion and inspiration are, are, you know, holding hands all the time, right? So how do you inspire others by just breathing, you know, breathing that passion out is great. Is there any advice that you were given maybe from these notable figures that you still kind of use to this day or stuck with you? You know... I think it was, I, I had gotten a bad review uh, when I had opened Lapis and we were on the waterfront and there was a lot of eyes looking at us and actually ended up getting two stars and I was hoping for more than that, it was two and a half stars. And mm-hmm. George Marone came in and he was like, at the time, I think he was Madonna chef at the hotel in Miami and and oh, he was fine. so talented, right? And he, he called me from across mm-hmm. the country and he was like, you know, out of the blue, like, you know, don't give up. Don't worry about it. Like those are, those are reviews and you're young. He's like, I've gotten shitty reviews. He's like, just keep doing what you're doing and, and stay on, you know, stay on it, stay focused, stay consistent. And, and I think Mm -hmm. that's what it really takes in our industry in the food industry is just to consistently there's every meal isn't going to be perfect. There's going to be good meals. There's going to be bad meals. And just continuously focusing on the goal and trying to be as consistent as possible was a key. That was a big one. And, and it helped turn around, you know, because at the time I was young and I think inconsistent was my middle name. And so that really helped me to focus mm-hmm. to be like, okay, this is, this is your career. It's not like I made one great meal, but if the next one's not as good, um, it didn't matter. I made that one great meal, but really it was the last meal that, that you served really is, you know, what's important. How do you, how do you keep that bar up all the time? I like that. Something I'm, I am really seeing through everyone, because I've had brand executives, I've had influencers, I've had chefs, I've, whoever it was, is the term consistency. When I ask them about how they're, they landed their success, I'm trying to use that inspiration as well, because you know sometimes being inconsistent is super easy to do, especially if you're just, I don't wanna work today, I don't wanna do this today. But it's the people that show up and take that extra step to negate that bad review and just keep going that are going to end up pretty far. Yeah. There's an old coach of mine. He's like, deeds, not words. Anyone can say what they're going to do. It's the person who actually, you know, gets up every day and does it. That's what matters. And uh, I always love Danny Meyer's quote of the road to success is paved with failures well handled. 
And I think that's another one is like, we're all going to trip and stumble and fall, but like, how do we get back up? Or how do we say mea culpa? And you try to fix it with either the customer or with somebody you work with that that's a big part, right? Like, mm -hmm. I love that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot too. It's, it's how you handle it. That's also is how other people perceive your character, I think, because if you can easily blow up or you can easily say the wrong thing, but if you just kind of take a step back and react the proper way, which is, there's a lot of layers to that yeah. statement, but I, as we get older, we get another second in our pause, right? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to do that, but sometimes it is easy to just, it's, it's yeah, yeah. Triggered, yeah. Right? yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's also very easy to write the to-do list and not actually do anything on the to-do yeah. list, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, those are what Sundays are for sometimes. So, you know, that's your day off. That was my Sunday yeah. this weekend. That's definitely for sure. <laughs> and the list. Just yeah. Blew. Well, you know, we had a rainy day here in the Bay Area, so we haven't had one of those in a while. So it kind of is like, it's okay yeah. to just relax and read a book today. And I, you know, I think that's another thing I found is that I don't always have to be doing something. I think as a chef, or as a, as a founder of a business, you feel like you always have this need to go, 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 go. And if you're not doing yep. something, you're kind of like, oh my God, and I have this antsy anxiety that I should be purposeful or useful. And I've learned in the last couple of years, it's like, it's okay to just relax and don't feel guilty about it. Like you deserve that. You worked really hard to okay. get to that point. So yeah, I'm still learning that. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it still gives me immense anxiety to sit down. Yeah. If I'm not productive, it's like almost like you're lazy in your own head or you feel guilty for it. But at the same time, you need those mental breaks to be productive. So it's very counterintuitive. Yeah, I, think, I think the definition of serenity is when it's acceptable that you've come to point to that point of acceptance of like, I'm just supposed to relax right now and I can be peaceful with where I'm at. I think that's a huge yeah. learning in my mind. It's nice that we live in a nice area too, because... Well, actually, there's caveats to it. I'm going to take that back because when it's nice outside, I feel guilty for staying mm -hmm. inside. If I'm working all day or doing whatever it is, I feel like I should be going to do something. But when it rains or something, then I'm like, oh, that's a great excuse not to do anything yeah. and just chill. So, yeah, well, I mean, California is always nice. If you so. live in Seattle, it's a non-productive <laughs> lifestyle. But if you're in California, you know, it's okay. I actually miss i grew up in new england and i love the change of seasons i love the change of seasons and so san jose doesn't get a whole in the bay area it doesn't get a whole bunch of rain and so i like that like stormy yeah. days like it rained outside i took a little nap and then i went and took a you know four mile walk in the rain i was like yes change of weather I could wear wow. some boots i can you know put a jacket on it was great yeah. that sounds very main character music video yeah, moment maybe yeah <laughs> Possibly. Walk yeah. in the rain. Yeah, I grew up in um, New England as well. So this is the first year I'm here when it's warm in the winter because I just okay. moved here. But I was traveling a little bit and I went to the Midwest a few weeks ago. So I got the mm -hmm. fall because I was kind of sad I was missing the fall. But now it's not getting cold and I like don't know uh, what three, to do. Three more weeks. <laughs> three more weeks. It'll start to chill. But you're down in, okay. in the Southern Cal, in SoCal. So it's not going to get yeah. cold. Yeah. You got to come to NorCal to get a little chilly, but it's not going to get cold in like New England. Yeah. Well, I'm fine with that. I mean, I've seen snow, right? I know what it looks like. I don't yeah. need to exactly. <laughs> see. <laughs> to kind of circle back here, the service industry kind of garners a lot of fun and wild stories and you've worked in a lot of restaurants. Are there any stories that you still remember about maybe people you cooked for? Do you have, have you cooked for any kind of notable people? Or? Yeah, I've, I've actually have. I mean, uh, when I was at Lapis, I remember we had a call mm -hmm. one time late night and Sharon Stone came in and had dinner and that was kind of fun. Oh. Uh, Radiohead came in, REM came in a couple of times. So I was cooking for Tom York and uh, Michael Stipe and both of them were vegan at the time. I think they still are. So I put some vegan meals together for them. It was funny. I moved to Atlanta and I had a, a party at the place I was working in. Woody Harrelson was there and he was also a vegan. I was like, why do I keep oh, nice. cooking for these vegans? Right. And then he had a really good meal and he called Alicia Silverstone and she called me on my kitchen phone one time. She's like, hi, this is Alicia. My friend Woody said you would make a meal for me. And I was like, 
shit, this is like Alicia Silverstone on the phone. And uh, she was great. Like, she came in. I had a special dinner for her. She made her own beer. So ended up going and hanging out in, in the lounge and having a beer and just talking about food with her. That was really cool. But I think o- over, you know, over awesome. time, there's been, you know, uh, I mean, Hubert Keller, Roland Passo, and all the French, you know, I call it the French mm-hmm. mafia of chefs in San Francisco have come in to eat. Danny Myers eating. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of great people. I think the, the person who I like the most is of people who really look forward to going out and eating. And it, it doesn't matter what layer of life you are. It's just like the average person who's like making it a special meal. Right. That's really important to me. You know, how do we make that person's meal fantastic? Because mm-hmm. they might not have it all the time versus, you know, the, the star can have right. it whenever they want. Right. But uh, it is it is kind of nice to get those those folks in. I don't know. Do you feel any extra pressure with those kind of people or is it kind of another day in the office? Um, I think, I think I have felt a little more pressure just because it is this, I mean, they go on stage and are seen by so many millions of people and there's a level of maybe perfectionism in their careers that they try to achieve. And so you want to share that. And I think their ability to go out and measure, you know, whether, whether it's their economic security that they have and they can go eat a lot of great restaurants and and have a lot of great experiences they're going to measure you against those experiences as well so i think that does lend uh, something into your focus when you when you're making those meals at the same time i think Mm -hmm. i've cooked meals for people who it just i mean food's not their thing right and so just because they're a star on tv or um, radio it's just food's not their passion and so it kind of fell to the wayside and so you know it's a little bit of both i try to make every meal great i think every chef will tell you that no one's gonna be like oh it's more than another but i i you know i think the ones that i've like when it was like a woody harrelson or alicia who was like this is what i'd like to eat and you get to talk to them about what they like about food and you could see that that passion right it kind of inspires you to create something special for them and i and i enjoy that yeah, I like that. That's a good point. They they do have a lot of experiences, so they're probably comparing a lot of the time whatever they're doing because they do have the opportunities to travel abroad or have some of the highest chefs cook them food. So I've never really thought of it like that. Um, yeah. Is there a dish that you kind of – I mean, you said you had to cook for the vegans, <laughs> but um, – Always worked that is way. There, <laughs> is there a dish or kind of specialty that you have or are you across the board you know i i would say that i used to love mediterranean food like northern southern european um northern african i i love asabuco okay. i don't know what it is i love making asabuco i love braises i think that's part of my new england heritage of like the, the mm-hmm. fall and the winter comes so creating a really know nice braise with a beautiful piece of meat um but when i started gobble part of the excitement of that was to broaden those horizons of food and to really get out of just hey i I really like mediterranean or french training and take the world and and travel and and read about it and kind of expand my uh, palate and expand my you know understanding of food and the culture and the equipment that was used because of that to, to make that food. So mm-hmm. now I'd say it's more of a global palette. I think I do a lot of things really well, and I have a lot of room to improve on everything, to be honest with you, in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a it's an expansive place. I If I was to go, I'd say Italian food is always great, right? But I do love the spices of like North yep. Africa, Morocco, Tunisia, and those flavor profiles are great. Food. Yeah. It's yeah. all good. Yeah. I think that's a healthy way of looking at it. You always have room to grow no matter how much success you have or, or whatever you do. There's always some facet where you can grow a little bit more. But now that we're talking about gobble, I kind of want to get into that a little bit more. What's the biggest challenge about making recipes for a meal kit versus a restaurant? You know, it's a great question. And it, it really is a lack of control. Um, when you're in the restaurant, you can control every single aspect of the meal, how long something was cooked, the pans that you have, the ambiance of the dining room, the silverware chosen for them to eat that product. It's Maybe it's a certain size spoon with a certain concave aspect to it. Maybe it's a fork. I mean, all those little things that you think about as a chef, how are you getting that 
into the customer's mouth. And as a meal kit, it's how do you make it accessible enough for this customer with their plastic sliding cutting board or their kid who's tugging on their, you know, shirt or the dog who's like barking or whatever it is really simple and easy for them to make a meal that meets a high, you know, watermark of, of quality with all the confusions of a non-controlled environment. And I think that's a really difficult thing to do at times. I mean, everybody cooks dinner every night, at, not all the time when we order in, but so you know that somebody's cooking dinner, but how do you translate what your vision is of a meal into, you know, a successful dinner for someone that they can put on the table in 15 to 20 minutes? That's what, that's what the core emphasis of Gobble was. And, and is still to this mm -hmm. day. And so, uh, like I said, the controlled environment of a restaurant or hotel is great. And you, every single aspect of, you know, one person's got a copper core all clad pan and someone's working on a really thin tin mm -hmm. Walmart pan on an electric coil stove, that cooking time of that steak mm -hmm. is gonna be a lot different or the crispy skin that you wanna get on, you know, the the beautiful pink snapper that you got or, or Breer Monday and it's like sticking mm -hmm. because the pan wasn't hot enough. So. How to simplify right. it is really a difficult part without losing the excitement of what that meal is meant to be. Yeah, I didn't really think of that point because when I was thinking when you translate meal kits or translate from the restaurant to meal kits, I was thinking more of the instructions and kind of how everyone interprets those differently. But it's also, like you mentioned, the materials because not everyone has the certain things that you would use or has the knowledge of knowing what to use, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, if I can dive into this for a little bit, um, yeah, of one of the greatest learnings that I got at, at Save That Gobble is in a restaurant as a chef, I had a little restaurant, La Mital, and I had 28 seats and I could see every single seat and there were six that I couldn't, but I looked through the espresso um machine and i saw the mm -hmm. reflection and i was i'm very in tune with my senses so i could hear people talking and you kind of tune into people's conversations is the silverware hitting the plate mm -hmm. or not were they really like the food and the dining room was quiet was there a lot of talk and it was jovial or if it wasn't happy like there's so many senses that we have as chefs that we've learned to use in a small restaurant work that way yeah and so when we started gobble and we were trying to perfect the keys to success for the meal kit that 15 minute meal kit um, the best way to do that was to go to, you know, our customers' houses and watch the process. And so it's really interesting because a lot of people would like, you have this beautiful recipe card and we have three-step photos and some of them are bullet points and some of them are narrative instructions and where do you put everything. And you see people take the food and the box and the recipe card and like some people wouldn't even look at the recipes they just look at the pictures and they're like yeah i got this and they start going right and then other people would like oh, read okay. the entire recipe card all the way through step by step by step before they start cooking so there's definitely a couple of different people who are gonna you know types of, of cohorts right who are gonna do different things with that product but then also seeing like what they're cooking with or like walking across the kitchen because their kitchen isn't organized in a fashionable way or just the equipment that they have. I just saw so many variables that were there. So we really tried to just streamline the and gold standard, our recipe cards that over time, you know, I'm a pasta. All right. I have a pasta. I'm, I'm automatically taking that pasta pot out. I'm putting water into it. Like people will get into that. Right. So just having consistent steps. Right. right. I think that really helps. It's like anything, you know how to drive a car, Olivia, I'm sure. And when you go on vacation and you get a rental and it's a Jeep and you're like, I know how to drive a car, but like everything's kind of in a different place, right? Mm -hmm. So the radio is a little different and maybe my blinkers are different or, or the shift or the seats are off. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with reteaching people how to cook one of your meals. It takes time. Like by day two, you're driving that car and it's great. Mm -hmm. But the first day you're like, wait, my mirrors aren't right. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just getting ingrained behaviors for people to speed up that process and, and eventually that's how it works. Yeah, yeah, that's a great analogy. I'm the kind of person that will not read a recipe all the way through, which I'm learning to do because I often don't have the ingredients that yeah. I need <laughs> when I go to make something, which is not ideal. But I wanna go back to, we'll go back to gobble in a second, but I'm curious about your, your senses kind of thing. I thought that was really interesting how you were able, I guess, multitasking maybe is the right word. Did you watch the bear? I watched season one and 
I have season okay. two lined up, but I have to be in the right state of mind at times to watch it because it did hit close to home a little bit. Season one of being in that restaurant, okay. you know, and the chef's behind his ear. Like I lived a little mm-hmm. bit of that lifestyle, but I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Cause when you said senses, I immediately thought of that. Cause that was like a sensory kind of overload because you're right. You do have to be in that, that state of mind and pay attention to watching it. Do you think that's kind of an accurate representation of the pressures of everything or kind of what you were explaining? I will say this and I, you know, I know we're on a podcast, but I think somewhere along the way, I probably was, <laughs> doctor would have said I have ADHD, right? So, so <laughs> whatever, I threw it out there. I love the kitchen because of that, <laughs> because when there's 15,000 things going on in a kitchen, like time kind of slows down for me mm-hmm. and I, I excel in chaos, but I always used to go into the restaurant every day and do a prep and I'd have my prep list and I'd be like, how can I make this go faster? If I was doing something in six minutes, I tried to do it in five minutes and 50 seconds. And every day I would time myself on all these little things. And eventually it'd be like, how many things can I get going on at one point and still have them perfect at the same time? So you start to get in tune with your sense. I think, when you're brunoising, you know, scotch bonnet peppers, you have to like be able to listen to be like, all right, is my water simmering on the stove over there, right? Or like, oh, is that are my nuts in the oven? Are they starting to smell that little bit of toastiness that you get there? So I think over time, I'd really start to mm-hmm. hone in on those senses so that I could multitask on things. And I've always tried to teach my cooks that too. I was like, your, your greatest sense you have is your sense of smell, but really all the senses in one and I think as a chef I would always I'd go in the office and I'd be working and I'd come out and my sushi would be like how do you always come out at like the right the right time like when shit's going bad and and I was like well if it's too quiet that means something happened and if it's too noisy it means we're not being productive I'm like and somehow I can tell the difference in the normal you know it just it becomes a sixth sense and so I think you have to be very in tune with your senses and it's hard I mean, I have a really strong sense of smell. I have very strong olfactory sense uh, and hearing. And okay. so I think I just have tuned into those really well. Um, and I and I think I try to teach mm-hmm. my my chefs and my cooks to do the same thing. Wow. That's so incredible. That sounds like a superpower that I do not it's have. It's practice. Yeah, it's something you work <laughs> on, right? Like if you're, if you're sitting in L.A. and you hear something, it's like you hear all this cacophony, whatever it is, of noises, right? Yeah. Just find one and what is that sound and where is it coming from and how far is it coming from or all those smells that like walking through New York City and you have like the sewer drain and all these like where's your nose leading you I I love that right just try to identify where those come from yeah yeah because I try my brain is always going it's like I'm thinking of the next thing thinking of the next thing so when I'm cooking I start this I start this I start this but then I lack the awareness to realize where those things are and where I am mm. in certain steps. So then the water does boil over or I do burn something. It always turn, ends up turning out pretty good. I will say, I don't really have a lot of kitchen okay. faux pas or mishaps, but it is something that I should work on to try to be yeah. in tune more because never Move chef has mentioned that. Yeah. I think it all. just takes, it takes time and practice and awareness, right? I mean, when you're cooking at home, do you have a certain playlist or music that you listen to and, you know, it was that that's all right. That's a constant. Like for me in the daytime, it was like hardcore mm-hmm. EMD and like, you know, drum and bass. And then at like four yeah. o'clock, it turned into like Nina Simone. And like, that was very calming influence mm-hmm. for the rest of the night. Right. Uh, and I just love that. Yeah. Yeah. I do podcasts. I need to expand my podcast because then they all come out on Monday mm-hmm. and then I run out and then it's just silent. So I okay. need more podcasts. know what has been your most well-received idea or week or recipe to date yeah i think we've had a you know a couple big winners our indian style butter chicken or you know that goes on the menu and it's you know a garam basala basmati rice and the indian style butter sauce um a little salad of tomatoes and um, red onions and uh, an orange cumin vinaigrette and some toasted naan people love that and i think it's it's comfort exotic right it's people say comfort familiar american classics but really butter chicken is a comfort exotic meal i think that was a big one 
I, we had an indulgent Wagyu cheeseburger, I mean, with Swiss and cremini mushrooms yeah. and a parrot and, you know, blue cheese salad mm-hmm. that people love. So I think that was early on. Um, mm-hmm. Some of our, like a Malabar curry, we have a lot of unique dishes that are great. Our Thai red curry, mm-hmm. I went to Thailand and I worked on a, a red curry uh, sauce for a while. I was there for like two weeks and just traveling from Chiang Mai to Bangkok and down. And um, so those are some of them. And Amazing. Our shakshuka, we worked really hard on creating a great shakshuka sauce. So those are probably the really big hitters, I think, that do really well. Um, but we have over a thousand meals and they rotate all the time. So mm-hmm. it's 20 different meals every week right. and we're still creating new meals and taking some that, you know, we feel just maybe it's time to move on from. Right. I oh. Thailand sounds incredible. Yeah. It's on my list. Thailand, I Vietnam, really and the Philippines are all really close, and they're completely different places. Oh, totally. Yeah, totally different. Have you been able to travel a lot? You know, I that was part of about being a chef when I was young. I wanted to travel all over the world and understand, right. as I said, the culture and the food. And then because I hit, like, this your chef at, at a young age, suddenly I was, like, chained mm-hmm. to the stove. Like, I couldn't leave. I hadn't. So like 22 to 25, it was 80 hours a week and maybe one week off. And I didn't care because I was just my craft, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when Lapis right. started, um, we did really well and we got we got some good reviews. And uh, I had the opportunity to go to Dubai and consult on opening a restaurant there. Oh. Yeah. So that was my first big trip. And it was actually before 9-11. So it wasn't, the only thing there was like the Burj Al Arab, right? It wasn't the Dubai that you see today. But it was kind of cool. I need to go back uh-huh. there. But I got the chance to go to Amsterdam and and check out. Oh, it was wow. great. The food, the the you know Van Gogh Museum and the parks and the rivers was fantastic. You know, I went to uh, Southeast Asia with uh, Thailand and Vietnam and the Philippines for a month. I took a little time when after like we got gobbled oh, off the ground wow. and it was great. Just you know, uh-huh. I just went and ate everywhere and tasted food and lived the cultural experience. It was great. And then came back to. U.S. a couple of years later, as we were developing our tomato sauce for Gobble, I oh, actually okay. went to Italy and we found. You know, I was going to say yeah, Italy. Yeah, southern Italy, <laughs> non-GMO tomatoes, and so that's where we created tomato sauce. So I got to spend ten days there, watching, you know, picking tomatoes out of the ground and just literally just brushing yeah. it off and, and eating a tomato, and then you know, watching that whole process of how do you make you know large-scale tomato products, and it was fantastic and. Yeah, I love that. This past year, I actually took some time off and I went to Japan for 20 days oh, by myself. And it was, yeah, it was kind of like a rite wow. of becoming, like you deserve this trip. And, you know, I didn't want a whole lot of distractions. Yeah. And and it was great. I had such a great time because you're dropped off in Japan. Have you been to Japan at all? or? No, I was just talking about it this morning, actually. on my I recorded a podcast this morning, too. And he had literally just come back from Japan oh, yesterday. It's amazing. Yeah. Like wabi-sabi attitude, just the it, the dichotomy of like the daytime, everyone's like, you know, very quiet and austere and, and you know, you're walking, yeah. you know, with hundreds of thousands of people and you could hear a peep, right? And then at night, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the bars and the grills and the karaoke and everyone's having fun. It's like a totally different place, right? Same people, but... Yeah. Um, it's so clean. I mean, in in the 17 days, there was two pieces of litter that I saw on the ground, and I picked them both up out of like a sense yeah. of duty, right? There was no, yeah, <laughs> it was. Yeah. There was like no homelessness. Um, it just, it was beautiful. It was clean. The people were really friendly. The perfection of everything, whether it was ramen or getting a coffee out of the machines that were all over the street, the vending machines, you can get ramen or a coffee or cold and and hot and the same um the sushi just different places they're uh different different uh foods it was fantastic yeah i loved it yeah oh, that sounds yeah, so Kyoto. incredible yeah. were you in tokyo i did or? Uh, tokyo for four days osaka for three days kyoto for okay. three days hiroshima i stayed at a ryokan and um like little hot springs for two days I slept on a mat on the mm-hmm. floor. I won't do that again. That was, I need to do this, but like, I won't ever do that again. Yeah. That was, my hips yeah. were killing me. I was like, but, but it was, it was great. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was wonderful. Yeah. I, I want to go back and probably do Hokkaido and a couple more time in Kyoto. Kyoto is like beautiful. It's like old school Jap- Japan, right? It was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I'm going to circle back when I go to Japan eventually and ask you for recommendations. Yeah, please do. Please do. And uh, yeah, I've bought a lot of shit. Uh, Japanese chef knives. <laughs> I ate really well. Oh. <laughs> I Were you able to bring those back? <laughs> yeah, actually, I brought um, 22 knives back, I think. Yeah, I kind of splurged. I got a couple for gifts. And, uh, you know, my brother's like, TSA didn't question that? <laughs> um, TSA pre checked. You know, they did. They questioned a little bit, but there were a lot of good chefs. <laughs> you can edit this part out, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's okay when i um i always mention i feel like italy always comes up in every podcast episode and it's my personality at this point i brought back parmesan cheese mm. and i didn't know really that you're not supposed to do that until i saw a huge sign that said no dairy products are allowed to come back yeah <laughs> um i mean it made its way and it was delicious so yeah I don't regret it, but I, sometimes you just can't do it. <laughs> I might have gotten some dairy products through myself when I came from Italy and some sausages and yeah. This is all hypothetical. Yeah, I mean, though. if I was going to Italy, hypothetically, yes. <laughs> hypothetically, I would bring the entire store back. Yes. <laughs> Something I learned there too is they're just, their tomatoes are so incredible. Yeah. I, when I took a cooking class there, she, I think she just put maybe salt and pepper on it, and that was it. Yeah. And it was the best salt I've had in my entire life. I find what, – what part of Italy did you go to, by the way? Uh, I was in Florence, but I was kind of going all, all over. Place. But that cooking class was in Florence, yeah. Yeah. You know, I found that – that's what I loved about Italian food so much is just how mm-hmm. pure the ingredients were and – that's it. Like you just need a little salt or pepper or not even sometimes just a little bit of herbs on there or yeah, I loved how clean the eating was there. I think as mm-hmm. Italian Americans, I'm Irish Italian and my, my parents are from, you know, the Bronx and Brooklyn. It's like, we had this idea of Italian food and then you go to Italy and it's completely different. You know, a lot of it is, I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of that same parts there, but um, it was just more delicate and beautiful. Right. It wasn't this heavy yeah. meal. Right. So it was great. It's an art. Yeah, it really it's was great. So the, the anchovies and uh, the Michello, that was fantastic. I can't even think about it because it's making me like. <laughs> I'm thinking about my next trip there is what I'm doing. I'm like, so how long um, How long do I need to stay this time? Is a month too long? And, you know, no, yeah. or is it not, is it not long, long enough, right? Or is it just move there for three not months? Long yeah. Just move there for a few months. Just don't do it in the summer because you will be sweating. It was hot. Yeah, I was there in August, and I think I was going through shirts like they go through pasta yeah. over there. I mean, it was just wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess you sweat out the pasta, yeah, but still. Still, yeah. Starchy collars, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you said you were Irish-American? Irish-Italian, yeah. Or, or I mean, Irish-Italian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I am too. Irish-Italian-American, yeah. Irish-Italian-American. Right. Dad's Italian, mom's Irish for you? Correct. Same here. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, I don't really look Irish, but, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you look, look more exactly Italian. Like you have more of the Italian <laughs> side to it. I don't know. Yeah, if, if you see um, a picture of me and my father, it's the same. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we, we look the same. So was the Italian side more predominant in your in your childhood growing up? Where was it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I would say, I, I will say my grandmother actually took me to Ireland, partly because I think she wanted me to get back to the Irish roots because I we were just eating Italian food every day. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, spaghetti and meatballs, the, the whole nine yards, that's basically what we would eat right. all the time. You don't get sick of it, you know? No, it's, I mean, it's cheesy pasta goodness with, you know, meat sauce. How could you get sick of that versus coming home and mom's making like mutton stew and (laughs) just the smell as you walk in the door floors you and you're like, oh my God, right? So that versus like sweet, you know, fennel Italian sausages simmering in a pot of tomato with some polenta, like that wins over every time, right? I think, I think the only thing from my mom's side was this Irish soda bread she used to make. And oh. it, was, it smelled so good. Yeah, just like the house smelled great. And that was the one thing that I fell in love with for Irish food. Oh, I have to make that. I think, honestly, my household staples, well, this is a very American. We did like this mac and cheese. It was like my grandmother's recipe. Mm-hmm. 
or great grandmother's recipe at some point and then my dad's sauce which i've mentioned a few times on here and then he makes um eggplant as well so fried eggplant that's a very a big staple at family parties yeah same here yeah yeah the so, it was southern italian the nap the napoli yeah 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 so good mm -hmm. I asked him to make me lasagna when I go home for Thanksgiving, even though we're going to have tons of Thanksgiving food. I was the same. Mom was like, what do you want? I'm like, uh, baked ziti and your meatballs and sausage. Like it's, that was it. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Are, although you're probably cooking for a lot of those holidays now. Do they turn to you to cook? Yeah. You know, I think it, it got to a point where it was doing most of the, the cooking in there. And that was fine. My, my brother lives in Portland. Um, and he's okay. actually, he owns like four, three pizza restaurants, two bars and another oh. restaurant. So he's, Whoa. yeah. So cooking's kind of in our, our family, I guess. Um, so I think oh, wow. one of us is usually doing, my sister's a fantastic uh, cook as well. She's not in food, but she was a smart one, uh -huh. but, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Hey, she could work at one of those three pizza restaurants. She, yeah. She used to work at a sushi restaurant, a Michelin sushi restaurant in Seattle. And so she was doing just fine. Oh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know what I would do? I would shut down the pizza restaurant and have Thanksgiving there. That's what I would do. You know what's funny? That's what he usually does. That's what really? I went visiting him three days. He's like, shut down the pizza place. He deep fried some turkeys in, you know, one of his bars and we all ate in the pizza place and he had this big potluck and it was fantastic. He had like pinball machines. Yeah. Atlas Amazing. pizza. It's great. Like it's, he's got three places there and they're all like very unique. And I just had so much fun. He had all his friends show up. It was fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like such a fun party. Yeah, it was. I just did it in my house, yeah. so now I need to buy a pizza restaurant. <laughs> yeah, baking a turkey or you're stuffing in a pizza deck oven, that's great, right? So. Yeah, you deep fry the turkey? So you do, yeah. He would deep fry, it was good stuff. Is that your favorite way to cook it? No, I actually like a spatchcock turkey, to be honest with you. I like cutting the backbone out okay. and then kind of spreading it out and then getting that really crispy skin. Martha Stewart. Yeah, that's kind of my thing. Does that. Or, you know, I'll take the breasts off and make a roulade and then confit the legs. And I just like, the legs yeah. are kind of, I mean, they're iconic to like hold up the drumstick, but it's so sinewy and those small little bones. It's, it's not as enjoyable as like, I'm going to confit those and, you know, break it apart mm -hmm. and cook it individually and make it perfect. I enjoy it that way as well. It depends. Every year it changes. Oh. It's like, what is you know, what inspires you this year? What are you making it with? Yeah. You know, what's your theme this year? Yeah. And then kind of go from there. Try to do new dishes kind of every year. Yeah. I think that, I think that's a, there's some classics that have to be kind of there, but then like the mm -hmm. modern twist that you get on there, or I always thought the idea would be really fun because it's a land of immigrants is to take dishes mm -hmm. from all over the world and like make a big Thanksgiving. If it was like a Thanksgiving for the world in America, like everybody brings a dish that mm -hmm. was unique. Maybe it's, you know, like the Thai style green beans or whatever, just to see how that would work. I think it'd be great. I think so too. I was just talking, I was interviewing Andrew Zimmern for an article mm -hmm. and he pointed out something so obvious to me that I just never really thought about because I, I often ask like, what's a non-traditional dish that you'll bring to a traditional thanksgiving or or christmas or whatever it mm -hmm. is but he was like tradition is just so different whether you're in the midwest whether you're in the south whether you're in xyz because when you think of that natural thanksgiving you think of mac and cheese you think of green beans whatever mm -hmm. turkey whatever yeah. and he kind of does something similar where he brings a new dish in every single year because his Kind of traditions are a little bit different so i just never thought of that i thought it was interesting you know a couple of years ago we were we were rolling out the gobble thanksgiving menus and you start talking about these things in april or may because it takes a long time right. to plan it out and mm -hmm. i wanted to think about america and what really makes america great and what makes not not in a trumpian mm -hmm. way <laughs> but like that, like what <laughs> what you know like where is american food where does it really come from what is the dystopia uh -huh. of that and and mm -hmm. we broke it into regions and it was like New England and the Pacific Northwest and the Southwest and even California mm -hmm. cuisine and the heartland and, you know, Southeast and, and then mid Atlantic. And we kind of, I gave all my chefs like, here, I want you to go and do some research on this part of the country. And what are the ingredients? Like, what are people eating for Thanksgiving there? Look at the magazines or look at some books. And I'm a huge book collector. Mm -hmm. I, have, I have a lot of books. So you know, find out what people are eating. And then we kind of laid out the whole U.S. and then we created 
an entire Thanksgiving from each area in the U.S. and talked about what we liked or what we didn't. We had marketing and everybody. It was really fun. Yeah, it was great. And, you know, we, we ended up settling last year on Southeast Lake Louisiana style. And I thought it was fantastic. Like, it was great. Like, Creole Thanksgiving was great. This year we're doing a little more of, like, a, a classic New England again. But, yeah, it's it's really interesting because I think people then are looking, why was this dish made? Like, what, you know, why are, you know, Oregon, obviously, huckleberries instead of cranberries, right? Certain parts uh-huh. of the Midwest might be, you know, a lingonberry because you have a lot of Swedish who landed in a certain part, like where people came in from is, I think it's really, and settled. You you start to see those, how the rest of the world has settled the U.S. So it's, it was fun. It's a fun exercise. That sounds super fun. That's just a melting pot of ideas. You can go crazy. And I think, yeah, it was a good educational experience and we can always dip back into that too. So. Yeah. I was going to ask what you're kind of doing for Christmas or New Year's. Do you have any fun boxes that are coming out yeah so we always we always do a holiday box and so we're doing a a traditional thanksgiving and then um for christmas and new year's a lot of people travel we're actually going with a a four pound prime rib this year that's probably you know some special spices and uh garlic herb Mm -hmm. butter um and we're actually that was the photo shoot that i just came from right now oh really (laughs) we're putting all the assets right now so we're actually making a little simple it's just simple roasted root vegetables rutabaga parsnips um and then a simple mash this year and Brussels sprouts. Um, I think we, you know, everybody, it, it's interesting to look at how Thanksgiving is eaten or looked at versus maybe Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, it's about food. And it's about that right. entire day is about food and maybe a nap and maybe if there's some football and family. Uh, but, you know, Christmas or whatever holidays you're celebrating around that time is so different, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of people yeah, go to so many different houses. So we wanted to make something that was essentially put it in the oven and forget about it a little bit. And, uh, you know, we have like Gruyere and rosemary biscuits, which are really easy to make. But the food has okay. got a lot of flavor and it's really simple. I just, I don't think people want to spend all that time. They're so tired wrapping gifts and just worn out by the end of that. Like, how do we create a great, classic, elegant dinner on the table in an hour, an hour and a half that didn't take much work at all? Well, not everyone has that keen, intuitive sense of smell, (laughs) (laughs) so they want to forget about it when they put it in the oven, you know? We'll have it timed out perfectly. And then like some simple chocolate uh, cakes for dessert, uh, cherries, Jubilee. It'll, It'll be great. Yeah. I think it'll be oh yeah. yeah you said you're a book collector did you mean cookbooks or actual like novels? both both so mm-hmm. yeah the first book i ever that really got me into cookbooks i ran down the stairs at aqua and the chef was like go get the the saffron from the chef's office and on there was this book called the natural cuisine of george blanc and mm-hmm. uh george blanc's this classic french chef in the countryside and mm-hmm. he's kind of like what i guess you know, the French laundry would be today, a little farm, all grew everything. And I remember opening up this book to this soup that had like, it was just a watercress soup with a cloud of creme fraiche and little lily pads of sliced radishes floating on top. And it was so magical that mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, this is what food can be. You know, and I'm working at Aqua, which was this four-star seafood restaurant. I've seen right. art every day, but just capturing that image, it just, I don't know. And so I went and found that book and I started this little book collection with that and a couple other books. And then I, I had a house fire a couple of days before Thanksgiving no. in San Francisco and I lost them all. Um, no, and then I, so yeah, it was only, at that time I only had like 50 or 60, but then I started that's over. It was a lot. It was a lot. But um, no. I think now, you know, I, I probably have over 600 and, but I think Whoa. a lot of it is, you get to maybe more of cookbooks, just cookbooks. I have a room that's just, I think it's like, if you were able to learn everyone's like story and spend two or three hours to understand the way somebody feels about food or thinks about food or thinks about life with, you know, that's such a great way to do that, right? Mm-hmm. To sit there and understand that and to understand ingredients from a different part of the world. And when starting Gobble and we had, you know, a handful of chefs and we're talking mm-hmm. about, Ethiopian cuisine or, and people are like, what? Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'd, I'd start to like get these books and like, here, you sign it out. And I would say, here's five books. I want you to go back and get, I want you to come back in like a week or sometimes overnight. <laughs> Cause that's how fast yeah. we move when we do a startup. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and be inspired. Don't ever take anyone's recipe. Like I want inspiration and understand why they do the things that they do, but don't steal mm-hmm. a recipe from someone. I, I don't like to right. do that. 
And right. so I think that's where, and that just kept growing is like, we started to create food from all over the world. Uh -huh. It gave me a good reason to go out and find books from all over the world or some of the great restaurants you'd go and eat at. And actually that's what inspired my trip to Japan was okay. this book Monk about this uh, pizza restaurant in Kyoto that uh -huh. this guy who wasn't supposed to be a chef and his parents had different plans for him. And then he's like, cooking is going to be my thing. And, you know, he ended up going to work in uh, Copenhagen at a uh -huh. wonderful restaurant there. And then he came back and opened a little pizza place in Kyoto and it was fantastic. And so wow. I went to Kyoto after reading that book. That's when like that night I'm like, I'm going to Japan. <laughs> and I made my reservations that first thing I did. And then I planned the rest of the trip around that. And as I walked up to that restaurant, like it started to snow in Kyoto. It was so beautiful. It was like perfect, right? It was like the universe had aligned this moment because uh -huh. I had been inspired and I had seen it through and taken that trip. It was, it was great. Yeah. That sounds magical. It that was. Yeah, really it is. Yeah. Wow. You have a library. You don't have a room. I have books. a library. Yeah. <laughs> and it's continued. I think that's the hard part is continuously growing. I think it's like clothes, right? You're supposed to return three before you buy a new one, but yeah, no, no, it's so much knowledge in there. And there's, yeah, I have some great, I have some amazing books. Yeah. Wow. I would love to see that at some point. That is so cool. Yeah. I'll send a picture. <laughs> yeah. Send a picture. I would love to see that. I thought my collection was growing and I have like six. <laughs> so. Okay. As long as they're good uh, books, that's what matters, right? That you get something out of them. They are. There are a lot of the people that I'm interviewing or ones that I really wanted to, but normally the ones that I'm interviewing because I'm also interested in those anyways. So yeah, the one that I'm looking at now is he was on my podcast yesterday, but chef JJ Johnson, I was looking at, he had the art of rice and there's just some okay. ways to cook different types of rice that you just wouldn't think of. And it's a staple in my diet. Yeah. So that's the one I've been bookmarking. That's great. I'll, I'll have to check that out. I mean, rice is the most eaten grain in the world, right? Exactly. So, yeah. It's underrated. It, it is. I struggle with rice personally. I, you know, I'd rather have pasta, but I actually have started to really find an appreciation of rice. Yeah. I think that's like sushi isn't about the fish. It's about the rice, right? I mean, it yeah. really is the technique and the flavor. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I always just offer pasta too, but I think that's probably my heritage. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's what I'm saying here. All right, so I have a short game for you if you're up for it. It's okay. kind of like a little lightning round of food trends or foods right now, and you're going to tell me if you're for or against or smash your past kind of deal if you're into it. Uh, okay, got it. Got for it. or against or smash your past? Is that what it was? We'll do for or against. <laughs> Okay, for or against, got it. Go I give it. people the option of smash or pass because, like, sometimes they like to get a little do that instead of saying for or against. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay. Also, these are all just really random. They just came to my head. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. First one: pumpkin spice. <sighs> a little bit for, and I think it's only because I do like those warming spices, but mm -hmm. not in everything. Not in everything, just pumpkin pie and maybe a latte every now and then is good. Yeah. Okay. But the rest of it, don't overdo it. I don't want to see pumpkin spice toilet paper. I don't want to see pumpkin <laughs> spice, like whatever. And I think I've seen that. No. I've seen it. I've been sent um, <laughs> yeah, certain pumpkin exactly. spice cleaning supplies yeah. and other items. So. Yeah. I mean, everything has its place and I'm okay for, I'm okay to like branch out and try new things. But I think as a society, sometimes we overkill everything. It's like, oh, this is the new hit thing. Let's just crush everybody with it yeah it's like no like let's use it where it should be used and maybe branch out a little bit yeah agreed i literally just made my own homemade version of pumpkin spice because i okay pumpkin spice or well not pumpkin spice but pumpkin chocolate chip cookies and mm. it literally smells so delicious and i'm not really a pumpkin spice person but that is the only time i will do it for specifically those cookies <laughs> Yeah, I think that's where you, you know, or pumpkin bread, like there's certain things it's mm. that you do and making it yourself. I think you have a different appreciation, right, for it. Oh, yeah. And you can kind of the chemistry comes in of like, I actually like a little more clove or I like a little more. I'm from Connecticut. So the nutmeg part, right? Yeah, it's like nutmeg. Sort of yeah. yeah, I only had whole cloves. So I got a mortar and pestle and kind of uh, nice. myself. I was like, this is so chef of me right before I'm, yeah. I'm here. I'm like, I'm going to be as chef as the 
Thomas Ricci right now. <laughs> okay. Second mm-hmm. one, bone marrow broth. That was like a big trend for a while. Yeah, I think um, it's bone broth. I, I think mm-hmm. that it's a marketing scheme to make a lot of money off of something that was veal stock or chicken stock that's been fortified. Yep. So, yep, like, nope. Right. <laughs> I mean, you, you have a, just like buy a whole chicken or whatever you're cooking at home, make your own stock and freeze it. Like ice cube trays yeah. to pint containers, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I literally have some in my fridge and I, I just bought it when I was in like a health craze and I was like, everyone's doing this. And then I drank it and I was like, I could have literally just made this soup or something. Like I wasted $7 <laughs> on a pint of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was stupid. Yeah. Third one, cold brew coffee. Cold brew coffee. You know, I, I haven't really gone into that as much. I, I'm a, I'm a French press guy for myself mm-hmm. and I actually do instant coffee sometimes when I'm running out the door yeah. and I know it's just super easy, but, uh, I think I do like it. I think it tastes pretty good. I like the texture. It, I mean, I'm not really a coffee person, but I did just get into homemade, uh, not homemade. I don't know why I said that chai tea. Mm, so. I love chai. Yeah. And if you need like the dirty chai where you get the espresso shot put in there, that's mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good one too. I love chai. Actually, when I met Ushma, the, she was the original um, founder of Gobble. That's we had chai tea. It was our first meeting. Oh, and that was like, that's very oh, cool. Silver. Yeah, it was cool. <laughs> yeah. All right, fourth one: spicy baked goods. So I've seen like Mexican hot chocolate, like chili raspberry flavors. What do you think? I do like uh, a little bit of the play into the different chocolates, or there's these like candies that have like chili and tamarind inside Mm -hmm. them that I've kind of liked. I think they're kind of fun. It's kind of unique. It's a little bit different. And I like the fact that there's a lot of small companies who are taking chances with bringing their products out. I think the Mm -hmm. internet and just like Instagram has been great because a lot of people are like, oh, I want to try something. And and they they have a market to do that. Right. So, yeah, go for it. All right, last and final one, Korean barbecue. I actually love Korean barbecue. I love the banchan. Um, I I hate, I will say this, I will I will eat Korean barbecue quite a lot, but I hate the fact that they don't take reservations and there's huge lines for like an hour to mm-hmm. get into them anywhere in California. That it's is like, accurate. It's the worst. You're like, I just want to go. And if there's no line, you're like, that place isn't very good. Right. It's subpar Korean barbecue is horrible. Like, yeah. so, you know, if, I think you're in SoCal. So, I mean, I've waited Koreatown, hours. Koreatown in LA, though, is just so good. Like, the, <laughs> it's it's like eating bread or cheese in France. It's like your average place <laughs> is so much better than anywhere else in the world is, right? So, but I do, I do love it. I think I'm more into the banchan than anything else. Like, I just love all the dishes and this, this certain chef's unique takes on some of those things and uh yeah and the buddha jige and and duck you know the little rice mm-hmm. uh, noodles i do love that worth yeah. the wait though that's why yeah. I would wear it. it is yeah but i i try not to overdo the meat side too much because it just you know it's so easy to spurge there right yeah yeah it definitely is all right so yeah. my last and final question for you and i have a feeling i'm going to know your answer because we talked about what you brought back from Japan, but mm-hmm. if there is one cooking appliance or utensil that you think everyone should <laughs> splurge on, what would it be and why? It's funny you say this. I have a couple. Okay. Can I okay. give you a couple and tell Go you on. why? Is Go that okay? On. Go for right. it. We got time. <laughs> so I think if, if you're at home and you have a gas stove, um, which yeah. I love, honestly, I do have a gas stove. Yep. A Breville smart oven with the air fryer, is fantastic. It's going to be a splurge item, 300 to $400, but okay. it's a counter space. I've roasted whole chickens in there. I oh, can wow. braise a whole pot in there. And so I think that is kind of a splurge. I think secondly, really good cookware, like a Smithy cast iron or a, a cast enamel pan, like okay. six core, eight core. I think that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you like the versatility of that. So that'd be probably those two things are, are there really good chef knife but Mm -hmm. 
make sure you know what you're buying because I think like you can, there's a lot of carbon steel chef knives now. And people who aren't like, I'm going to take this knife and I'm going to use it and then I'm going to wash it and I'm going to dry it and I'm going to oil it and I'm going to put it away. Uh-huh. It's going to go, it's going to go wrong. Right. So if you have other people in the household that are going to mess up your knife, just find out there's a couple good ones. And last one, it's really not that much of a splurge, but a good cutting board. I can't believe how like many households I've gone into and there's like this plastic mat that they have or the super tiny OXO, which is a good brand, but like they're working. It's like, I have a big booze, I have a medium booze, I have a, you know, and then I have a plastic. And so I have a couple different variances, but when I'm cooking a full meal, I like to have like shoulder length wide cutting board that I can put all my meats and sauce on. And I know it's not moving. I know, and I actually take the shelf underliners and I put it under there instead of a towel mm-hmm. and it keeps it still. Don't, oh, yeah. that's so smart. Yeah, because I was like, what do I do with all stuff? And then one day I'm like, oh, this is perfect. So I think yeah, a good, yeah. like those three things or four things, you'll have a fantastic meal. Okay, I need the cutting board because I'm so sick of my own and I'll put shelf paper under it or something because I hate when it slips. Yeah. It's so frustrating. Yeah, it's just that I think uh, it's good to have that little one that you pull out, I'm cutting an apple up. Great. I don't want to clean a huge cutting board, but something where you're like, right. I'm going to cook a meal. And I want to work on my knife skills or whatnot. A good, thick, heavy cutting board is good stuff. All right. I got my Christmas list. There you go. Yeah. We're ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking the time out. This is a really awesome conversation, and it was really great to meet you. Yeah, it was very nice to meet you as well, Olivia. And uh, good luck on your West Coast journey. And, you know, enjoy your trip back for your Thanksgiving dinner and your lasagna. And, uh, (laughs) you know. And, uh, and best of luck to you. I think you, you got great things uh, ahead in your future. Thank you so much. That means a lot. You can check out www.gobble.com to check out their weekly chef design recipes and learn more about their meal kit offerings. Hey, fellow foodies. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave me a review. And while you're at it, make sure to follow me at Livin' for Food Pod on Instagram or TikTok or email me at livinforfoodpod at gmail.com. Let me know what you're cooking up this week, which guests you would like to see on the podcast, or tell me your opinions on the latest viral food trend. Until next time. <laughs>